I'm up here with a ladder today. This is just for illustration purposes. There will be no ladder-based acrobatics, no crazy stunts. This is not ladder Cirque du Soleil. We leave that kind of stuff for Kenny while he's speaking. I notice that he has removed the stairs from both sides of the stage, and I assume that in order to get up here every week, he just round off, back handspring, back tuck, right up onto the stage. I don't have those capabilities, so I'm just starting up here, and we'll see where it goes. For me, it'll just be a great day if I don't fall off the front. I would invite you guys in our sermon series, Creation and the Cross, uh, we're looking at the first 11 chapters of Genesis and how it relates to the most significant event in all of history, the cross. And today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 4. So if you want to flip to Genesis chapter 4, that would be great. And I have a ladder up here as an illustration, an illustration of the greatest problem that we have as humanity. A problem that began in Genesis chapter 3 and the events of Genesis chapter 3 and has plagued all of humanity ever since. Ever since sin entered the human race, we have been living life on a ladder, a ladder of sin. And it is a ladder of comparison, a ladder of tearing down, a ladder of climbing. And it is a result of what took place in Genesis 3 that we looked at last week. And today in Genesis chapter 4, we're going to see that one generation removed from the first sin, life on the ladder reaches the worst possible conclusion that it could possibly reach. It is as bad as it can possibly get, one generation removed from when sin enters the human race. And we're going to see that in the account of Cain and Abel. Who are Cain and Abel? Cain and Abel are Adam and Eve's first two sons. And what did Cain and Abel do for a living? Genesis chapter 4 verse 2 says that Cain worked the ground. He was a farmer. He worked uh, on on the ground in order to bring up vegetation. And, And what is it that Abel did for a living? Abel was a shepherd. Genesis chapter 4 verse 2 says he raised sheep. And one day they came to bring sacrifices to God. Why? We, we don't know. It doesn't say Why? But somehow they knew they were to bring sacrifices to God. And one day they brought sacrifices to God. Genesis chapter 4 verse 3 says, Cain brought from the fruit of the fields. He was a farmer. What did Abel bring as a sacrifice before God? He brought his sheep. But verse 4 says he not only brought sheep, he brought the firstborn among his sheep and the fattest of his sheep. That is the very best of his sheep is what he brought. And in chapter 4, verse 5, we're told that God accepted Abel and his sacrifice, but not Cain and his sacrifice. As a matter of fact, the word that my Bible uses is regard. God had regard for Abel and his sacrifice. He did not have regard for the sacrifice of Cain. What is it that was so exciting about Abel's sacrifice that didn't excite the heart of God about Cain's sacrifice? Well, the passage doesn't say. But we may get a clue when we're told that Abel brought the firstborn among his sheep and the very fattest and best of his sheep. It is communicating to us that Abel brought the very best that he had to God. It does not say the same thing about Cain and the offering that he brought to God. 
In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, we are told that the difference between Abel's sacrifice and Cain's sacrifice was faith. That Abel brought his sacrifice by faith and Cain did not. Abel brought his sacrifice and he brought the very best of what he had. And Abel kept the leftovers for himself and said, I trust that God will provide. Cain kept the very best for himself and brought his leftovers to God. And God said, that is unacceptable. That's not the way sacrificing to God Almighty works. And so, when Cain's sacrifice is rejected and Abel is is accepted, how does Cain react according to the end of verse 5? He gets angry. right? He, He is mad about this. And God comes to Cain and he says, Cain, what's up? Why is your face so downcast? Why are you frustrated about this, Cain? If you make the right sacrifice right now, won't it be accepted? God says, this isn't the end of the story, Cain. You can change. You can make a completely different sacrifice to me, and it will be acceptable, and I will regard it. You can do this. And so the question is, will Cain... Now go back and present a new sacrifice that is acceptable to God, that is regarded by God. The answer is no. Right? Cain goes a very different direction here, doesn't he? Yeah, Cain goes out into the field and he finds his brother Abel and he murders him. He murders him. Now, if you're familiar with this account, that is not a shock to you. But I just want you to think about that for a second. Cain went and found his younger brother, the brother that he had grown up with, and he took a rock and he started to bash him in the head until he was dead. Or he took a sharp stone knife and stabbed him repeatedly until he was dead. We don't know exactly how he killed him, but in this day and age that they were living, all of the options are grotesque and violent. And he killed his younger brother. And we see one generation removed from the first sin, the horrors of life on the ladder. Life on the ladder that resulted from that sin in Genesis chapter 3. When I talk about life on the ladder, how do we see that in Genesis 4 and the story of Cain and Abel? First of all, life on the ladder that is a result of sin is about measuring our worth and value by comparing ourselves to others. Life on the ladder is about measuring our worth and value by comparing ourselves to others. Cain isn't just upset that his sacrifice wasn't accepted, is he? He's upset that Abel's sacrifice was accepted. Cain looks at the ladder of sacrifice and he says, I'm down here and Abel is up here. And when he makes that comparison, it's frustrating and angering to him. And this idea of comparing on the ladder wasn't new even for Cain and Abel. This is what happened when sin first took root in the first couple. God came to confront Adam about his sin. And what was Adam's response? Adam's response was, okay, maybe I screwed up, disobeyed and rebelled, and I've gone from here to here on the ladder, but the woman, right, the woman you gave me, she's way beneath me. She's the real problem here. Right away, there's comparison on the ladder. Yes, I may have fallen down the ladder, God, 
But the woman, she's even below me. She's worse than I am. And ever since that initial sin, we have been comparing ourselves to others on a number of different life ladders in order to establish our worth and value. You remember how this happened as a kid? When I was in the third grade, I would take a math test, I'd get my score back, and it would say 86B. And what is the first thing that I did? The first thing that I did was ask my buddy Eric what he got on the test. Why? We weren't being graded on a curve. My 86 was an 86. It was not going to change. My B was a B. It was not going to change. Why did I ask Eric? Because if Eric responded and told me that he got a C, I felt so much better about myself. And if Eric said he got an A, devastating. Because in the third grade, we're doing a little bit of measuring our worth and value based on how we're doing on those tests compared to other people. Now, we don't just measure based on test scores. When, I was, when my son was in the second grade, I volunteered in his elementary school every month. And there was this weird activity that took place during recess for these second grade boys where 12 to 14 boys would gather around and they would run races against each other one-on-one. Well, just two of them at a time. Okay, who won? Who won? Over and over throughout all of recess, they would spend their time racing. And my son wound up with some sort of higher status because he would win most of those races. And he would insist to me later on in those days, Dad, I win those races because these shoes you bought me have racing flames on them. Right? They make me faster. Anyone ever have kids who insisted they were faster because of the design on their shoes? Pure crazy. But he insisted that that was the case. What were those second grade boys doing? They were finding a different ladder of measurement in order to figure out where they stood and what their value and worth was based on how others compared to them on that ladder. When I went to middle school, some of the ways that we compared on the ladder changed. We didn't go out at recess and run races against each other. But the table that you sat at made a tremendous amount of difference in where you were on the social ladder of junior high. If you sat at some tables, you were here on the social ladder. And there were other tables that if you sat at them, you were here. And there were a few tables that if you... I didn't do it. That if you... I'm not even bending over. Nope. We're done bending. Right? If you, if you sat at those tables, what happened? You were on the lowest rung of the middle school social ladder. Now, as adults, generally we do a better job of hiding the comparisons that we make with each other. But just because we do a better job of hiding them doesn't mean they're not going on. And we will compare ourselves to others in how much stuff we own. Right? Is your house really nice and my house is down here? Is your ride here and my ride here? Am I stuck vacationing in Wisconsin Dells and you vacation in Cancun? We're constantly comparing. We compare to others on the ladder of work success. Do you have a better job than I do? If we're in the same company, are you higher up than I am? What's my value and my worth based on these things? We'll compare against each other when it comes to our families. Are your kids better behaved than mine? 
Are my kids having greater success in some standard than yours? We'll even compare when it comes to doing moral good. That's really the comparison that the Pharisees wanted to use with everyone, is could you do the same amount of moral good that I can? And so when the other ladders aren't working for us, sometimes we'll turn to the ladder of moral good. Uh, yeah, I, I vacation in Wisconsin Dells. I would never waste God's resources like you on a vacation to Cancun. I care about God and stewarding his resources. Come on. Right? What am I doing? I'm changing the ladder. It's not about who vacations in a cooler place. It is about moral goodness and stewardship. Oh, oh you go to church? That's great. I serve in seven ministries. I'll pray for your soul. Because we're constantly measuring. Sin has damaged us so that we are measuring and comparing on life's ladder in a way in which we're trying to establish worth, value, and gain joy in all of that. Cain was measuring himself on the ladder against Abel. He didn't like the comparison, so he did something about it. Right? We, oh, whoa, whoa. We measure our worth by comparing ourselves to others. When Cain did that and found a problem, he moved on to step number two. What is it? We tear others down the ladder. If someone is above me on the ladder or anywhere around me on the ladder, I tear others down the ladder so that I feel better about my place, my worth, and my value. Cain tore Abel down the ladder. He said, you may be above me in the ladder of sacrifice, but now I am above you in the ladder of who is still alive. Take that, Abel. Right? I, I clearly have this one won on the ladder of who is still alive. And, and when we compare ourselves to others on the ladder and we don't like where we are, we will resort, because of the brokenness of sin, to tearing other people down the ladder. We will even switch the ladders we're using for comparison so that we can tear other people down. Right? Let me say that again. We'll even switch the ladders of comparison so that we can tear other people down. I've shared this story with you before. But when I was 16, I was dating my now wife, Erica. And I was going through a period of time in my life where my acne was a little out of control. Right? My, my face, the, the zits were bubbling up, kind of like bubbles on the top of a pot of boiling water, just one after another. They're regularly popping up all over the place. And how am I feeling about myself on the ladder of appearance? I'm feeling like I am somewhere down here. And one Friday night, I'm hanging out at home, and Erica went out with some of her friends in order to go and see a movie. And that movie happened to star Tom Cruise. And when she came home... She called me, and we were talking a little bit about the movie, and she happened to mention that in the movie, Tom Cruise looked handsome. Right? What's going on inside of me at this point? I, I am looking at the ladder of appearance, and I am seeing Tom Cruise. Not, not Tom Cruise now, right? This is 1989 Tom Cruise, right? Uh, I'm seeing 1989 Tom Cruise up here. I'm seeing me down here. And, and how am I going to tear Tom Cruise down on the ladder of good looks so that I feel better about myself? I can't. I can't. He's a better looking dude. What can I do? 
So I switch the ladder of comparison. And what do I respond? When Erica says, Tom Cruise looked handsome, how do I respond on the phone? You know he's only five foot six. <laughs> right? What did I do? I shifted the ladder of comparison. I know I can't tear him down on this one, but I've got eight inches on him. And so if I shift the ladder, I can tear him down over here. I have another friend. He was at church and his buddy brought him out after the service in order to show him his nice new car. And I don't remember what kind of car it was, but it was a nice, new, very comfortable car and they were working through all the bells and whistles. And as they spent time looking at this nice new car and all that it had, my friend went and got in his 12-year-old minivan with his wife and started the drive home. And he told me that on that drive home, he said to his wife, I would never waste God's resources like that. Right? To buy a new luxury automobile? Are you kidding me? What a waste of the resources of God. What is my friend doing? My friend is changing the ladder so that he can tear his buddy down. Okay, on the ladder of who has a nicer car, I'm losing. And at the stage of life I'm in with these kids behind me, I'm not going to win. So let's change the ladder around to one of stewardship where I can defeat my friend and feel better about where I am. Right? Isn't that what he's doing? Is he really concerned about stewardship in the name of God? <laughs> No, he just doesn't like his place on the ladder. And he's going to turn the ladder and make a new one where he can tear his friend down. Cain didn't like his place on the ladder compared to Abel. And so he tore Abel down in the ultimate way. When we tear other people down, it's not usually by murder, correct? Oh, that's a frightening silence. (laughs) Right? Okay, okay, good. Oh, man. How do we tear people down? Usually it's through our words, right? Usually it's by gossiping about them, slandering them, sarcastic jabs at them at their expense. Sometimes it's by seeing a need they have and not meeting it. They don't need me involved there. Come on, they're ahead of me on the ladder anyway. Why would I help them? And so there's a number of different ways that we might be involved in tearing other people down because we don't like where we are on the ladder compared to where they are. Cain tore his brother Abel down the ladder. The easiest time, the most natural time in our sin to tear someone down the ladder is when we feel they've torn us down the ladder. We feel like they've hurt us They've torn us down. The natural response of sin is to tear them down the ladder. But we see that in one of Cain's ancestors. His great-great-great-grandson is mentioned in Genesis chapter 4. His name is Lamech, and we see him in Genesis chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. And he says in, in Genesis 4, verse 23, that there are people who have torn him down the ladder. And look at how he responded to them tearing him down. Lamech said to his wives, now this is Hebrew poetry, and it may very well have been a song. Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. 
Lamech is singing songs around the family campfire. And what is he saying in these songs? He's saying, if Cain is avenged seven times, a number of completion, if he's avenged completely, then Lamech is avenged beyond completion, 77 times. If Cain is avenged completely, I am ultimately avenged here. 77-fold, he says. When somebody strikes me, I strike them back, and I strike them back hard. This is the way that sin constantly tempts us to handle it when others hurt us, when others tear us down the ladder. When, When I was in the eighth grade, I was sitting in the back of my English class, and when I was in the eighth grade, I was not a good student. And so we were supposed to have read a book that I didn't read. My teacher was talking about that book up front, and I had no interest. And so I was in the back just trying to pass the time. In order to do that, I was taking a quarter, flipping it up in the air, and catching it in my mouth over and over again. Right? Flip up the quarter, catch it in your mouth, flip up the quarter, catch it in your mouth. You've got to do something to pass the time while the teacher's talking about stuff that you're not interested in. And one time, as I flipped that quarter up and it landed in my mouth, my best friend Andy, who was seated in the desk right behind me, intentionally slapped me on the back and I swallowed the quarter. And I turned around and I hit Andy square in the chest as hard as I possibly could. Now, before you feel too bad for Andy... Uh, Andy was a big guy even in the 8th grade. He wound up playing football at the Air Force Academy. This was not some little withering flower. Andy was a tough dude. But even at that, Andy got up and left the classroom. And I got up and left the classroom. And I went into the bathroom and I stared at myself in the mirror and wondered how long it would take before I died. Because in the 8th grade, you don't know how these things work. I was like, "I, I swallowed a quarter. I think you'd die at this point. I just remember staring in the mirror going, Lord, is this it? Like, is it? Oh, what? What? Why did I hit my friend? I hit my friend because I felt like he had done something to intentionally hurt me. And so I struck him back. Right? Andy done something to tear me down the ladder. I'm going to tear you down the ladder. That is the sinful response to when people hurt us. And that's the response that we see with Cain and Abel. Now, we usually don't get revenge on people by hitting them in the chest. Usually, we get revenge on people again with our words, through gossip, through slander, through sarcastic barbs, through not helping them when they're in need. But we react in revenge. Because of what took place in Genesis chapter 3 that we looked at last week with Adam and Eve disobeying God and the effects of sin that came upon humanity, we live in this mess of life on the ladder of sin. A life of comparison, a life of tearing others down, a life of revenge. It is a messy and disgusting life. And we see it on display all around us, don't we? As our world models, oh, you hurt me, then I'll hurt you double. Oh, oh, you're above me, I'm going to tear you down. There is this constant comparison going on. But because of what Jesus did on the cross, as followers of Jesus, we can get off the ladder altogether. Through the work of Jesus on the cross, he breaks the ladder of sin and shame. And instead moves us into a totally different gospel understanding. So so let me show you what that looks like. 
in the gospel. We don't measure our worth and value and receive our joy based on where we are in comparison to others on the ladder. Instead, our worth and value and joy are based entirely on our relationship with Jesus. We're not measuring, okay, how am I doing compared to you? Okay, what's my value and worth based in these things? No, I recognize that as a child of God, my value and my worth are entirely wrapped up in the fact that Jesus has brought me in as a family member of God and given me an eternal destiny that is perfect with him forever. That that is where my value and my worth are caught up. Because of the gospel, we measure our value and worth in Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't things in the world that are better than other things. Is getting an A better than a B? Eh, most of the time. But is my worth and value and joy caught up in it? Nope. It, my kids behaving better than my kids misbehaving? Yep, it's better. But is my value and worth as a person caught up in that? Nope. Is getting promoted at work better than getting fired? Most of the time, does my value, worth, and joy caught up in that? Absolutely not, because I'm a follower of Jesus. And so my value, my worth, my joy, they are all entirely caught up in the fact that I have relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus teaches his disciples this lesson in Luke chapter 10. He sends all of his disciples out two by two in order to go and do ministry around Israel. And they go from town to town and they are proclaiming the kingdom of God and people are responding. And they are healing the sick and they are casting out demons. And when they come back to Jesus, after weeks and weeks of amazing ministry, they are on a high. They are on this ministry high that is up here on the ladder. Jesus' ministry has been awesome. Luke chapter 10, verse 18, they say, even the demons submit to us in your name. Verse 17, excuse me. What does Jesus say to them in response? Jesus says, you guys, the kind of ministry success and spiritual power that you've just experienced, that's just the tip of the iceberg. There is greater yet to come. Look at verses 18 and 19. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. You are experiencing amazing ministry success, tremendous spiritual power. And then he says in verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Do not rejoice in this. Ministry success, spiritual power, that may seem like an important ladder, but don't get your value, your worth, and your joy caught up in those things. I want you to experience just as much worth and just as much joy when you are being crucified upside down as when you are experiencing this kind of ministry success. And in order for that to happen, your value and your worth need to be tied up in the right place. And so he says to them, Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. That is where our value and our worth and our joy come from entirely. In our relationship with Jesus. That the living God has brought us into his family and that we'll be with him in it forevermore. I want to proclaim to you the truth today. Your your identity and worth is not determined in any way by how work is going. Your value and worth in life isn't determined in any way by how well your kids are behaving this morning. 
Your joy and worth in life are not determined anyway by how much you own. Value, worth, and joy entirely wrapped up in the fact that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That he loves you, that he died for you, and that you'll be with him forever in heaven. That's where our value and our worth come from. Because of the gospel, we don't measure our worth based on how we're doing on these ladders of comparison. It's entirely about our relationship with Jesus. Second, in the gospel, we don't live to climb over others and tear others down. Instead, Jesus says, gospel living in my kingdom is all about lifting others up. Jesus turns the the ladder of sin upside down and says, this isn't how things work in my kingdom. It's not about getting over others. It's not about tearing other people down. It is entirely about being a servant and lifting other people up. Mark chapter 10, you might know this account. James and John come to Jesus and they ask for the very best seats in the kingdom. And according to Mark chapter 10, verse 41, when the other disciples found out they did this, we're told that they began to become indignant. They they were just getting warmed up in their indignation. And I'll tell you, I don't think the disciples were frustrated with James and John because they were like, how could you guys have these kinds of values? I think they were frustrated because James and John beat them to the punch. And I say that because a couple of weeks later in the upper room, what are they going to be arguing about? Once again, they're all going to be arguing about who was the greatest. Jesus, tell us, who's up here on the ladder of discipleship? What's the order for us as disciples? Give it to us straight. I want to know, am I up here on the top rung, Jesus? What what do you think? In the gospel, we don't live to try and climb over others. Jesus says, no, it's totally different than that. Instead, we live in order to give our lives and our resources to help others up towards Christ. Verse 42, And Jesus called them to him and said to him, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says the way of the world that constantly seeks to tear others down so you feel better about being over people on the ladder, he says that's not the way of the kingdom. The way of the kingdom, the way that the gospel works in our life is to make us more like Jesus who was a servant and gave himself up for us. And so within the gospel framework, we get off of the ladder entirely and spend our lives, rather than trying to be over people, trying to tear other people down, we spend our lives trying to get under people in order to lift them towards Christ in all that we can. That's the way that the gospel breaks that pattern of climbing over others, tearing others down. Jesus says, nope, I'm calling you to something totally different. And finally, in the gospel, when others hurt us, instead of seeking revenge and tearing them down the ladder because they tore us down the ladder, We're a people of forgiveness. We're a people of forgiveness. Peter asked Jesus about how many times we have to forgive in Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Peter is trying to be generous here. 
The rabbis of his day said that you needed to forgive a person three times, and then on the fourth offense, you didn't need to forgive them anymore. And Peter's been around Jesus enough to know, that guy's filled with grace and generosity. I am going to up it from three. I'm going to seven. And I'm not sure that Jesus was overly impressed with Peter's attempts at generosity here, because his response to Peter is, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. So, on time number 78, I don't have to forgive you anymore? No, that's not what Jesus is getting at here. Why is Jesus using that number 77? Well, you know the answer to that because you just looked at Genesis chapter 4. Jesus is using this number 77 because of its Old Testament significance. He knows that all of the Jews who are around him listening to this hear Peter say seven, Jesus comes back with 77, and all of them go, these are the numbers of vengeance. They all would have understood the account of Lamech and that Lamech represented the ultimate in tearing others down when you're torn down. And Jesus redeems these numbers, 7 and 77, and says, just as Cain was avenged completely, and then Lamech was avenged ultra, ultra vengeance, right? Uh, Not seven times, but 77 times. So I don't just want you to forgive completely. I want you to forgive ultra, beyond completion with people. And so he redeems these numbers of vengeance and turns them into numbers of forgiveness and says, just as Lamech's vengeance was complete and total, so your forgiveness is to be complete and total. All of the Jews around him would have been astounded. He said, wait, what? The numbers of vengeance are numbers of forgiveness? He calls us to be people of forgiveness. And we are able to forgive because we are people whose lives are all about having been forgiven. What does Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 say? It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. What percentage of your trespasses did Jesus forgive if you're his follower? Right? 100% all of your trespasses have been forgiven. He has forgiven you totally and completely for everything you've done if you are his follower here today. And there are so many days, every day, that we need to live in that and preach the gospel to ourselves. We talk about preaching the gospel to ourselves all the time here because God has designed us to reflect on and meditate on these gospel truths every day to recognize how broken we are and how great Jesus' grace is in all of this. So I encourage you to just allow these scriptures to penetrate your heart and mind. If you're a follower of Jesus, Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. Romans 4, 7 and 8 says, Blessed are you whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every, uh, I'm sorry, we have turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 43, 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. And Psalm 103, 12. 
as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove your transgressions from you. We need to be a people who are daily preaching the gospel to ourselves to understand the depths of our sin and the complete and total forgiveness that Jesus has purchased for us on the cross. And then out of an understanding of that forgiveness, we forgive others. That is the biblical way that our forgiving others works. We struggle to forgive others. That's not an issue between me and them. That's an issue between me and God. Because when I recognize the infinite and perfect holy God's forgiveness of me, it leads to forgiveness of other people. That's why Colossians 3.13 says, Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Ephesians 4.32, Forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Because the ability to forgive others naturally flows out of a genuine understanding of God's complete and total and undeserved forgiveness in my life. If we're wrestling with forgiving someone else, that's not primarily an issue between you and that other person. It's primarily an issue between you and God. And the pathway to genuine forgiveness of that person is greater and greater meditation and understanding on the gospel and God's undeserved and complete forgiveness of you. Because it's when we recognize Jesus' forgiveness that that forgiveness will flow out of us into the lives of others. That's the way the kingdom of Jesus works. It is a kingdom of forgiveness. And those who enter into the kingdom live according to the rules of the kingdom. That's forgiveness. That's the rule of the kingdom. It's a kingdom of forgiveness and mercy. So when we enter into the kingdom, that becomes the way of our life. No longer are we, because of sin, seeking to get back at others because they hurt us. We're now practicing the forgiveness of Jesus in the lives of others. Because of sin... We live life on a messed up ladder in this world. But the gospel of Jesus Christ breaks the ladder of sin and brings us to a place where in the gospel of Jesus, we live totally different, free from the ladder. No longer comparing but recognizing our value and our worth come from him. No longer tearing down but lifting up and forgiving instead. The gospel has that impact on our lives, and the more and more we surrender our lives to Jesus fully and completely, the more and the more he works this freedom into our lives, removes the ladder, and brings us to a place of gospel living. And so we want to be completely and totally surrendered to him.